Uh, thank you, brothers and sisters. Uh, a very uh, warm welcome to you and a good morning. Uh, please could I ask you to keep your Bibles open at John chapter 15. That's on page 1075 in your church Bibles, John chapter 15. Uh, and if you're the kind of person who is helped by having a sermon outline, then on the inside of your bulletin, uh, you'll find an outline for today's sermon. I hope that that is helpful. Well, brothers and sisters, let us pray and ask for God's help before we look at his words together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, grant that I may preach Christ faithfully and in the power of your Spirit, and grant that we may receive your word with repentance and faith. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, in this church, every week, we confess our common faith in Christ. We believe that he is the only begotten Son of God, God from God, light from light. We believe that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, that he was born of Mary and crucified under Pilate, that he died and was buried, and that on the third day he was raised from the dead. Furthermore, we believe that this same Christ has ascended into heaven, and that he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And we profess that he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The question before us today, the question which Jesus has been answering in the past two chapters of John is this. What should we do during his absence? Church, what should we do during the absence of our Lord Christ. As Jesus moves on to answer this question, he does so using a picture. Now, so far in John, Jesus has used six other pictures to describe himself and his work. He is bread, he is light, he is the door, the shepherd, and so forth. And now in chapter 15, verse 1, we have the seventh and the final picture. Look down with me. At verse 1, Jesus tells us here that he is the vine, and not just any vine, but the true vine. Now, for those who don't know, a vine is just the plant that grows grapes. But to be a true vine, well, that is a little puzzling. Imagine if I describe myself to you as a true Englishman. Now, that means something like this. I am a model Englishman. I play cricket, I understand cricket, I talk about the weather, I subsist on a strict diet of tea and scones, I'm presently confused about Europe. A true Englishman would display all the characteristics of Englishness. But that's not what Jesus means here. He does not excel in vine-likeness. No, rather, as we heard from our Old Testament readings, the vine was a common picture for Israel. In the words of Isaiah that we just read, God had, figuratively speaking, planted Israel as his own vine. And as the planter of the vine, God looked to it to yield his fruit. That is righteousness and justice. However, you may have noticed, as our readings revealed, there was a problem. There was a slight flaw in this picture. And that problem is roughly this. 
Israel was a rubbish vine. It was absolutely awful, simply useless. Here is the words of Isaiah again. This is what God says. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And for this very reason, for their lack of good fruit, God judged Israel and he destroyed them. He broke down the vine that he had planted, tore apart its branches, and gave his people up to the fire. So what do we learn from this picture? What is the theology being taught? What are the truths about God that we are meant to grasp? Well, really, it is very simple. There are two things. Number one, when God looks at his people, he expects to find the fruit of righteousness. When he looks at us, he expects to find justice, righteousness, truth, and holiness. Be not mistaken. And number two, if he does not find that fruit, but if instead he finds envy, greed, lust, malice, then he will not spare his people, but he will judge and destroy them. For as God's church, we have no freedom of presumption. We cannot call ourselves God's people live in disobedience, and presume that things will be all right in the end. The Bible is very clear on this point. When John the Baptist was preparing the way for Christ, he told the assembled crowds, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we are God's chosen people. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So that is the theology behind the picture in a nutshell. Now, as we return to our passage, as we look at John 15, verse 1, as we look again at Jesus calling himself the true vine, the significance of Christ's statement is this. As the true vine, Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. He is the true Israel. He is the one who has yielded the fruit of perfect obedience, righteousness, and justice. He is the one in whom God truly delights. And consequently for us, if we are to have any hope of being the people of God, if we can have any expectation of being pleasing in his sight, then it can only be through our union with Jesus. And that is exactly the point that is developed by the picture in verses 1 to 7. So we are now at the second point in our outline, union with Christ, the reality 
behind the picture. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, there are two things here, two things we must grasp. One, we as Jesus' disciples are united to Jesus. We are united to him. We learned that last week. We learned that through the sending of the Holy Spirit, the ascended Christ has united us to himself in spiritual union, and not just himself, but his Father also, so that we, as believers in Christ, as those who are united to him by faith, experience all the fullness of the blessed Trinity, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells with us and in us. However, the second point, we are not united to Christ as his equals. We are not united as one vine to another vine, nor as one branch to another branch, but as branches to a vine. Christ as the vine is the one who has life in himself, and we as the mere branches only have life because we are connected to him as the vine. We only have life because of our vital connection to Christ through his Holy Spirit. And so the point is this. It is essential for every one of us that we continue in this life-giving union, that we persist in this relationship. To use the language of Christ, we must abide in him. We must abide in Christ, because if we do not abide in Christ, if we do not remain united to him, then we will not bear the fruit that the Father seeks from us. And that is precisely what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. Look again with me. Verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. <coughs> I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So here is the point. If we are not united to Jesus, if we are apart from him, then we cannot bear fruit that is pleasing to God. And if we cannot bear fruit that is pleasing to God, we thus show ourselves to be dead branches. And if indeed we are dead branches, then we must hear the solemn words of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. So to summarize, outside of Jesus, you will be without the fruits of righteousness. Outside of Jesus, you will be dead in transgressions and sins. And so outside of Jesus, you will be heading to the eternal fire. But as those who are united to Jesus, you have life. 
United to Jesus, you can and you will show forth the fruits that the Father is seeking. And moreover, you have his assurance that you shall not merely bear fruit, but you shall flourish in that fruit. For the Father himself shall tend to you. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And all of these things, verse 8, that the Father may be glorified in his Son. So that's the first two points. And now we have the remaining third. All that remains for us now is to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is the fruit that the Father is seeking? What is the practical outworking of our union with Christ? What is the evidence of our abiding with him? And Jesus answers us very clearly, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Our abiding in Christ is demonstrated concretely in us obeying him. If we abide in his love, we are those who are keeping the commandments of Christ. And what is the commandment of Christ? Verse 13, very clear. This is my commandment, that you love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Another. Now, Jesus told us this before in chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But in substance, that commandment is really no different to the Old Testament demand on Israel. Hear these words from Leviticus 16. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, he concludes. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But what shall you do? The Lord says this, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, all the previous commandments essentially restrict our wicked deeds. They constrain us in our sinful inclinations. Yet all of these would be unnecessary if we understood, if we obeyed that final command to love our neighbor. And that is why Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that to love your neighbor as yourself is the law and the prophets. It is why the Apostle Paul tells us the same thing. For love is and always has been and always will be the essence of God's law. Love does not need restrictions or constraints. Love does not require boundaries. Rather, a heart of love will always seek the good of our neighbor. There are boundless opportunities to be fruitful. This is the fruit that the Father is seeking. This is the more excellent way that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 13. Therefore, church, seek above all things to abound in love. 
as the apostle tells us, be patient and kind, do not envy or boast, be not arrogant or rude, do not insist on your own way, be not irritable or resentful, do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. And by this, by all these things, the world shall know that we are Jesus' disciples, the sons of our Heavenly Father. However, before I close, I think there are four important distinctions that do make this a new commandment, and they are worth observing. And do not worry, I shall be very, very brief. The first is that this command to love is Jesus' command. That is, it is Jesus who assumes the right of divine lordship. It is he, as the eternal God, who is the object of our loyalty and obedience. Two, the command to love is patterned upon the eternal love of God as he is in Trinity. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now John's gospel reveals to us the abundant beauty of the inter-Trinitarian love that the Father has eternally loved and delighted in his Son and has eternally given to him the Holy Spirit. And John also reveals to us that we, as those who are born again by that same Spirit, are united to that same Son as beloved children of God, and that we are the recipients of that overflowing, eternal, divine love. Our love for one another reflects the splendor and majesty of who God is. We do not merely love because of what God does, although that is reason enough. No, we love also because of who God is. Third, our love is patterned on the way, on the manner that God has loved us. And that is that the Father did willingly give up his Son, and that the Son willingly laid down his life for us. Look down at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And how has Christ loved us? Well, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Brothers and sisters, let our love be patterned upon Christ and his cross. Let us give ourselves up wholly, without reserve, fully for one another, with our resources, with our time, with our energy. Let us love one another in a cross-like way. And finally, the fourth point. I think if we truly understand the thrust of John's gospel so far, we would know that the triune God is revealed to us as a God who is on a mission, a God who has got work to do. We know that the Father has sent his Son as light into a world that is in darkness, that he gave his Spirit to empower his Son in his saving work of bringing people out of darkness and into light. And now that risen Son has poured the same Spirit upon us as his church that we might engage in that same work, the work 
that as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And he tells us that greater works we shall do because he has ascended to the Father. Let us proclaim his gospel that life may be brought to those who are dead. We are not the slaves of Christ, as verse 15 tells us. We are his friends. We are his friends, for we know what our Lord is doing in this world. We know the chief act of our Father, the chief act of his love. He is bringing eternal life, the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ to a world that lies in darkness. Let us, therefore, as recipients of the love of the Trinity, as we love one another as Christ has loved us in his cross, show to the world that same love. So brothers and sisters, what should we do in the absence of Christ? Well, we know that he isn't truly absent. We're united to him by his spirit. Yet, what should we do as we wait for his return in glory? Obey his commandment to love one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that we might walk in a manner fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the love and knowledge of God, the love of one another, and showing forth the love of Christ to this world. And we ask this for your name's sake. Amen. To reaffirm our faith, shall we all say the Nicene Creed together, found on page 5 of this yellow booklet. Together, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Let us pray for the church and for the world.